What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here to listen to Vanished in the Valley. Today, we are going to talk about a 9-11 quote-unquote conspiracy theory, and more specifically, the Israeli art students that were given full access to the World Trade Center in the four years leading up to September 11th, 2001. We are also going to talk about the Emerald Tablet. And I'm talking about the real Emerald Tablet, not the Emerald Tablet of Toth the Atlantean, because that was kind of made up by a cult leader back in the 1930s. We are also going to talk about some January 6th nonsense going on, as well as the Oath Keepers. You know, that fucking group that like tried to portray itself as patriots, but really just had 300 members that were associated with the DHS and other alphabet soup groups. So, sit back, get ready for this. The Emerald Tablet is often associated with Hermetic texts. And a Hermetic text is just a text that has been attributed to Hermes, which is basically the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Toth. There's all kinds of ideas where this thing came from, and there's legends surrounding it. Its origin story is that the tablet was discovered in a caved tomb, clutched in the hands of a corpse of Hermes Trismegatus. Hermes can be found in Muslim literature, he can be found in European literature, ancient Egyptian literature, like this motherfucker got around apparently. And the wisdom attributed to him in antiquity combined a knowledge of both the material and the spiritual world, which rendered the writings attributed to him of great relevance to those who were interested in the interrelationship between the material and the divine. There is a lot of different information that has been passed down, basically some say for like thousands of years, that is attributed to Hermes. So that's just kind of like a little background on that figure. The Emerald Tablet is believed to hold the key to Hermetic philosophy and, and alchemical transformation. And like I was saying earlier, its origins and very existence have been shrouded in mystery. I think the alchemists of antiquity fucking revered this tablet. Their first actual mention of the emerald tablet is found in Arabic texts dating back to around 6th or 8th century AD. From there, the knowledge of this tablet spread to European alchemists during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. One of the key phrases that most people, some people, whatever may recognize is as follows. That which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below, to accomplish the miracle of the one thing. A lot of people think this phrase implies a fundamental harmony between the universe and the individual or small-scale phenomena. It suggests that understanding the one realm leads to knowledge in the other. And a little side note, the one is a reference to the source that emanates the universal life force energy, the source of all existence, basically. A lot of people believe the Emerald Tablet is the cornerstone of Western alchemy and hermetic tradition. It is famed for its cryptic, enigmatic text. 
It's believed to contain the secrets of the universe. Its words have been analyzed and contemplated by alchemists, philosophers, and seekers of mystical knowledge for centuries. There are various translations of this document, but the core message remains consistent throughout all of these different translations and throughout time. A lot of people believe it reveals profound insights into the nature of reality. Now, because this is Vanished in the Valley, I have to kind of explore its connections to aliens and UFOs. Now, I'm fucking serious. The Emerald Tablet has long been revered in the realms of alchemy and hermetic philosophy. But in recent years, however, it has piqued the interest of those in the UFO and extraterrestrial research community. And it's sparking debates and theories about its possible connection to otherworldly intelligence. Rooted in a tradition that dates back centuries, the Emerald Tablet's cryptic text is believed by many to hold the key to profound alchemical and spiritual wisdom. Its most famous axiom, as above, so below, suggests a universe of harmony and correspondence and has been interpreted in various ways through the ages. So the leap from ancient alchemical wisdom to the theories of extraterrestrial origin stems from the belief that the knowledge contained within this tablet is way too fucking advanced for its time. Proponents of this theory argue that the sophisticated understanding of cosmic and spiritual laws could only have been imparted by a more advanced, possibly alien civilization. They draw the parallels between the tablet's teachings and the central tenets of the ancient astronaut theory, which is that ancient civilizations were visited and influenced by alien beings. This perspective views the symbolic language of the Emerald Tablet, particularly its references to celestial phenomena and the transformation of the soul, as potential allegories for alien encounters or descriptions of UFO experiences. Phrases that describe ascending to the heavens or references to celestial bodies are sometimes interpreted as coded messages about space travel or extraterrestrial communication. And as if that wasn't far out there enough for you, a lot of people believe this tablet contains a recipe for making the Philosopher's Stone, which can turn metal into gold. According to the tablet, a stone is made by separating the three essentials, salt, sulfur, and mercury, purifying them and recombining them. Once done, they are empowered exponentially by repeated circulations. The philosopher's stone and the plant stone, to a lesser degree, are like lenses through which a universal power and perfect intelligence pass. The stone focuses and concentrates the threefold primary energy of the creative word. That's why it will transmute metal or flesh to its level of potency. The more potent the stone, the more profound its effects. Now, I know that sounds really crazy and fucking out there, but this is literally a tablet that people have been studying and translating, some say for at least 36,000 years. Others say at least a couple thousand years. So, I mean, there is definitely some wisdom to be found in this tablet. I don't think anybody has actually cracked the code to make this Philosopher's Stone. Well, not anybody recently. But it's very interesting to kind of theorize about the possibilities of the Philosopher's Stone. Transmuting lead to gold is just one characteristics attributed to the Philosopher's Stone. 
It's also said that the stone is able to restore the sick to health or the old back to a healthier, younger state. As far as if they're talking about like an actual fucking stone or this stone is a metaphor for something else, I don't fucking know. I'm not that smart. This shit has been looked into for fucking centuries and I don't think there are a lot of solid answers about the tablet or the Philosopher's Stone. Like I was saying earlier, the tablet has been translated into Arabic, it's been translated into Latin, to French, Germanic, it's been translated for fucking like a thousand years. And medieval alchemists, this was like their fucking Bible. And apparently these alchemists back in the day were able to change lead into gold. So if this tablet has been translated and there are still like the ancient translations around, what the fuck has changed from, you know, fucking 500 years ago, a thousand years ago to now that no one here, no one reading this fucking tablet could actually transmute lead into gold? What has changed? Is it the whole calcified pineal gland? I don't fucking know. Is it that humans have lost touch with a lot of nature and visual cues that just the outside world and even your own fucking body can give you? Because we're hella distracted by TV and the fucking news and stupid shit that really doesn't mean anything. So I don't know. It'd be really interesting to see if at some point humans could get back down on that vibrational level and transmute this fucking lead into gold. Come on, cure the sick. Someone figure this shit out, please. <laughs> if you actually dive into the Emerald Tablets, you were going to get fucking 9 million results for the Emerald Tablets of Toth, which is definitely not the same thing that I'm talking about. So in the Emerald Tablets of Toth version, that version straight up talking about like serpents and reptilians ruling the world and using our blood to enslave us. And basically that shit was dreamt up in the 1930s by a cult leader. So make sure if you research this to not go into the one, I mean, you can for fun, but just know the difference. The Emerald Tablets of Toth is not what I'm talking about. There's no fucking recipe for the Philosopher's Stone in the Emerald Tablets of Toth. And just to give you kind of like a little idea what the Emerald Tablets of Toth are kind of talking about, let me just read this little paragraph for you guys. Far in the past, before Atlantis existed, men there were who delved into darkness, using dark magic, calling up beings from the great deep below us. Forth came they into this cycle. Formless were they of another vibration, existing unseen by the children of Earthmen. Only through blood could they have formed being. Only through man could they live in this world. And it kind of just goes on to that. It states that in ages past, they were conquered by masters, driven below to the place whence they came. But some there were who remained, hidden spaces and plains unknown to man. Lived they in Atlantis as shadows, but at times they appeared among men. When the blood was offered... For they came, they to dwell among men. So yeah, completely different topics versus the Emerald Tablet of Toth and just the Emerald Tablet. But I mean, both are kind of fun to read about. <laughs> yeah, check out the fucking reptilian shit in the Emerald Tablets of Toth. This motherfucker that wrote that went in, went hardcore in. So it's, it's kind of interesting. 
As far as where the Emerald Tablet is today, no one really knows. But it is said that the actual tablet was put on display in Egypt in 330 BC. Around the year 400 AD, it was reportedly buried somewhere in the Giza Plateau to protect it from religious zealots who were burning libraries around the world at that time. Many people believe that the tablet still lies there to this day. So everything that we know about the tablets is not a primary source. This shit has been lost to time. What we know about it today is just from translations and other philosophers and scholars writing about the Emerald Tablet. And a cool little side note, it said the Emerald Tablet was inscribed upon green crystal. And one cool little fact, the tablet was not written in Egyptian language. It was written in Phoenician language. So it's pretty cool looking. Um, check it out, you guys. Go fucking deep into this rabbit hole because I think there's a lot of buried ancient wisdom that can be found in the Hermetic Emerald Tablet. All right, you guys, it's change of subject time. I think maybe it was last year, maybe the year before. I don't fucking know. I did an episode on 9-11 and basically how it was an inside fucking job. If you sit down and think about it, there are just two organizations on the entire planet with the expertise, assets, access, and political protection necessary to have both executed 9-11 and effected its cover-up to date. And I'm talking about the CIA and Israel's Mossad. So if you want like a full-ass background on the whole 9-11 was an inside job conspiracy theory, go check out that older episode. But today, we are going to be talking about the so-called Israeli art students that were inside the World Trade Center, and there's actual pictures of these motherfuckers with boxes of blasting fuses. So sit down, check this shit out. There were two artist groups called Gelatin and the E-Team who were selected to be part of the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, Worldviews, studioscape programs that allowed them and other artists to work and live in the World Trade Center in the four years leading up to 9-11. And they basically had full fucking access. And more specifically, they were working on the floors 91 and 92 of the North Tower. They were given seven-day-a-week construction access to the World Trade Center, that allowed them to freely move all sorts of materials in and out of the complex. So in the years leading up to 9-11, these two fucking art groups managed to secure these temporary construction passes to perform work on the 91st floor of Larry, quote, Pulit Silverstein's least World Trade Center One. The whole pretense of this shit was an art project called, quote, B-Thing, and the group is called Gelatin. After securing their passes, Gelatin proceeded to remove the heavy World Trade Center windows of an office space on the 91st floor and reportedly constructed a prefab balcony outside of the building. They then stretched, quote, putty around the windows and filmed it by helicopter as a stunt. The fucking New York Times even reported on this whole fucking bullshit. To the NPCs of the world, I bet this sounds pretty innocent. Well, look a little bit deeper and you'll see the fact that the photos taken from the artists themselves and put in a book called The Bee Thing and were used in the Times article from inside the 91st floor campout revealed boxes stacked to the ceiling 
with the letters and number BB18 on the side. BB18 is the model number for a fuse holder accessory. If you take a look at pictures from that day, I'm sure a lot of you will remember the picture of a supposed imprint made by the aircraft's wings. Yeah, their aluminum wings went through steel. Makes total sense. And this was on the 93rd through the 98th floors. Another fun little coinky dink is in early 2000, an Austrian art group who had 100% been infiltrated by Israeli bomb experts was working on an art project, which they called the Bee Thing, which was to create a balcony off the 91st floor of World Trade Center 1. During this project, almost the entire 91st floor of the World Trade Center 1 was filled with empty boxes, which all were marked with BB-88 which just so happens to correspond with a specific and interesting product, Little Fuse Electrical Three-Phase Fuse Holders. There's actually pictures too. You can see these fucking boxes from floor to ceiling. So after this, in March 2001, another art group called E-Team lights up the World Trade Center in the same area with their art group using 127 illuminated windows, which coincidentally just so happened to be the exact location where the plane impact would take place just prior to 9-11, Gelatin, the original art group, the Israeli art students, then releases a fucked up and horribly drawn art book about their project, The Bee Thing, which contains some odd and quite in-your-face imagery, including a drawing of someone falling from the towers with the caption, 300 meters of pure pleasure, an image of the tower being destroyed with the caption, depression inside, amazement outside, and even a picture of the towers with a line above them and the caption, quote, last chance to open a parachute. The book itself costs 700 plus dollars and isn't meant to be the common man's art book. Some people think gelatin is referring to a type of explosive. Likely, the team that was in charge of the wiring prep for the outer core concussive charges every three floors, as well as the attack zone, quote, visual wiring at impact point with their, quote, balcony being used as a starting visual anchor so they could somewhat line up the expected impact zone inside and outside. The E-team is possibly referring to the explosive team likely the team that was in charge of the nano soul gel edition, which is patented paint on nano thermite to the buildings, mainly targeting the 47 core columns at impact point, the interior core columns, which is every six floors and the corner sections, every 12 to 15 floors. And once done, they lit up the entire impact zone with their name E team to make sure it was perfectly lined up inside and out. The actual explosives for the impact zone visuals and the outer core column charges were likely added over a five-day period starting on September 6th, 2001. And just a little mother coinkydink, that just happens to be the day that the bomb-sniffing dogs were removed from the World Trade Center. A large amount of telecom upgrades were being done throughout the building, which is why the occupancy in the towers was so low. A lot of occupants had Monday, Tuesday off, and a series of power outs took place over huge sections of each tower, and they're saying that was related to the telecom upgrades. A fun little side note is that the DEA was tracking these, quote, artists prior to 9-11, 
and tie in with the urban moving systems who had multiple people arrested in 9-11 for celebrating and filming the first attack and being arrested on the George Washington Bridge with a van full of explosives. They were deported back to Israel where they stated they were there to document the event. Let me just read you a document obtained through FOIA requests from the FBI. It states, Based primarily on the inconsistencies found in the statement of the five detained Israelis and the interviews conducted of T1 and other tenants of the Doric Towers apartments, the FBI conducted polygraphs of redacted and redacted on the issue of redacted, both redacted and redacted. <laughs> Thanks, FBI. You made that really clear. So the FBI then obtained a search warrant for the officials of Urban Moving Systems. The search, conducted on September 13, 2001, met with negative results concerning a video camera. At this point, the investigation, agents of the FBI's and Foreign Counterintelligence Squad, were consulted for the first time concerning the Israelis. Based upon the odd circumstances surrounding redacted and redacted, denials and deception over the alleged usage of a video camera, the Israelis and the noticeable positive reaction demonstrated by the Israeli detainees to explosions at the World Trade Center. And I'm pretty sure most Americans have never even heard about these art students or these Israelis that the FBI arrested and then deported. Apparently, evidence linking these Israelis to 9-11 is classified. According to U.S. official quoted in Carl Cameron's Fox News report on the Israeli spy ring and its connections to September 11th, he said, quote, Evidence linking these Israelis to 9-11 is classified. I cannot tell you about evidence that has been gathered. It's classified information. So on September 11th, Urban Moving Systems was owned and operated by an Israeli businessman named Dominic Sutter. After the five dancing Israelis were arrested on the George Washington Bridge on September 11th, the FBI searched the offices, the supposed company they worked for, Urban Moving Systems. And as a part of this, questioned Sutter. However, upon returning shortly after a second round of questioning, they found that Sutter had fled back to Israel before he could be questioned any further. Eventually, Sutter's name even appeared on the May 2002 FBI suspect list, along with the 19 September 11th hijackers and a few other suspected extremists. According to Vincent Canistrario, who was a former CIA chief of operations for counterterrorism. There was speculation inside the FBI that the urban moving systems was more than likely a front for an intelligence operation investigating fundraising networks that were channeling money to Hamas and Islamic Jihad. On March 15, 2002, Mr. Canestrario claimed that the FBI had concluded that the van's driver, Paul Kurtzberg, and his brother Sivian Kurtzberg were indeed Mossad operatives who were in America, quote, spying on local Arabs. Get fucked. So back to the Israeli art students. In January 2001, the DEA Office of Security Programs began to receive reports of Israeli art students attempting to penetrate several DEA field offices in the continental United States. Additionally, there have been reports of Israeli art students visiting the homes of numerous DEA employees. These incidents have occurred since at least the beginning of 2000 and have continued to the present. The number of reported incidents increased in the November-December 2000 and has continued to this date, you guys. 
These incidents have involved several other law enforcement and Department of Defense agencies, with contacts made at other agencies, facilities, and residences of their employees. Now, geographically speaking, the incidents are everywhere from California to Florida, but the majority of the incidents occurred in the southern half of the continental U.S., with the most activity reported in the state of Florida. I mean, just think about it. I am so sick of all these fucking coincidences about September 11th, yet the NPCs of the world just haven't bothered to sit down and think about it. What are the odds that an avant-garde Austrian art group was given access to the 91st floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center to remove windows, erect platforms outside the structure, and leave material that could only be viewed by a close-passing helicopter on a clear day. What are the odds that an art troupe are named after an explosive called gelatin? What are the odds this group is sponsored by a cultural group who has an Israeli agent as a member who lived blocks from Mohammed Atta, the terrorist who hated modern art, and crashed an aircraft into it? What are the odds that the marking on the cases that line the walls of the space they were using were the same marking used for a special fuse holder assembly that allows for complex wiring? What are the odds the New York Times actually published a full-page feature in August, even showing pictures of the artist's work? I would really love to see the unredacted version of these FBI documents. I just, what are, what are the odds, you guys, that fucking a bunch of poor Israeli art students were busted for being Mossad and deported a few weeks after 9-11 happened? Like, what, what are the odds? Jesus fucking Christ. There is also a DEA report, but it's kind of fucking ridiculous. On its own, it doesn't offer much to connect these so-called Israeli art students to 9-11, notwithstanding an additional irrelevant classified docs that have never been released to the public. Another little side note, some of the addresses of the Israeli, quote, art students and their proximity to the reported addresses of the hijackers is remarkable. So like I said at the beginning, this whole event, 9-11, was pulled off by the CIA and Mossad. And there are a lot of theories as to why, what did they want to accomplish. And I think I kind of lean towards everything that happened after September 11th, the fucking Patriot Act, going on some fucking endless wars in the Middle East. For what? For what? For fucking President Brandon just to pull out, get our people killed, get our allies killed there, and leave billions of dollars in equipment, military equipment, to fall into the hands of the Taliban. No one is going to be able to convince me that 9-11 was not an inside job. And I'm not even like bringing this up because of the whole Israel-Gaza shit. I don't give a fuck about that situation. Let them kill each other. I really don't fucking care. But what I do care about is when Americans are attacked on American soil and there is such a fucking cover-up that even now, 20 plus years later, most people don't even know the full fucking story. And like I was saying earlier, if you want a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist view of what happened on September 11th, check out my old episode that I actually put out on September 11th a year ago. Some shit like that. Because there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into this theory. There are a lot of little dinks and other stuff that just does not add up. But this whole Israeli art student thing, I had never really looked into it that deeply. 
And I didn't know about these fuse boxes. I had no fucking clue about that until I just started my research on the Israeli artists. What I don't get is why Israel keeps getting caught spying on us for fucking decades, yet we still fund their little wars, we still fund their fucking lifestyles, we fund Israel. That is not a conspiracy theory, that is 100% fact. How and why are we funding a country that keeps getting caught spying on us, and a lot of worse things too? But I don't know, it's kind of mind-boggling. Hmm. Since we're on the subject of Israel, I'm going to tell you about the IDF Special Sperm Retrieval Unit to collect the sperm of fallen IDF soldiers. The health ministry set up a special unit that works 24-7 with the IDF and the four hospitals housing sperm banks to notify families of the option and set it up as quickly as possible following the death of their son or husband. Sperm must be retrieved within 24 hours after death to increase its chances of viability when it is later unfrozen and used to fertilize an egg. However, experts say that this procedure can be performed even several days after the death when the sperm is no longer motile. Quote, we look for and prefer sperm that are moving, but even sperm that is not motile does not mean it is not alive. We know how to make it move after it's unfrozen. And that was a quote from Dr. Yuval, head of the IVF unit at Kaplan Medical Center. So if you look into it, apparently it's like a cultural thing that Israeli parents want to become grandparents. Yeah, because just Israeli parent. What? <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of cultures, parents want to become grandparents. But anyway, but supposedly the Israeli grandparents want it so badly they use their dead children's sperm to get a grandchild. There is actually a case that happened back in 2007 where an Israeli soldier who had been killed used his sperm to impregnate a woman he never met. Kevin Cohen, who was 20, was shot dead in 2002 by a Palestinian sniper in the Gaza Strip. He was single and left no will. But at the urging of his parents, a sample of his sperm was taken two hours after his death, and it had been stored in a hospital since. When the family tried to gain access to the sperm, however, the hospital refused, on the ground that only a spouse could make such a request. Arguing that their son yearned to raise a family, his parents challenged that decision in court. On January 15th of that year, after a four-year legal battle, a Tel Aviv court granted the family's wish and ruled that the sperm could be injected into a woman selected by Cohen's family. So this is like a thing, and I guess it's been going on for a fucking hell of years, but I had never heard about it. So I just wanted to bless all y'all with that little knowledge of the fucking sperm collectors <laughs> collecting sperm off dead ass soldiers. Kind of next level, but I mean, I kind of get it, I guess, and stuff. <laughs> now we need to move on to some January 6th news. So a man named Tony Saruga made a post on Twitter and it states, my partners and I have been lifetime data scientists. We own the digital ID of every mobile device and computer in the U.S. and have indexed and archived every IP address in the world. Our extensive experience in big and deep data, including geotracking and geolocation, makes our dozens of data companies the top authority for providing data to corporations, law enforcement, and the U.S. government agencies like the CIA, NSA, DOD, DIA, NGA, FBI, 
as well as Interpol and foreign intelligence organizations. The Post goes on to say there are a number of videos documenting these ghost buses, as well as a number of mostly nondescript Department of Justice vans that dropped off, quote, ninja-wearing individuals that appear in other videos to have breached the Capitol cutting fencing, removing barricades, opening doors, and other nefarious behaviors. We have also tracked the infamous J-6 pipe bomber from one of these vans. Later, we eventually tracked them to a Virginia metro station where a perfect capture of their vehicle license plate was made. The FBI has all of this information. Shortly after they were alerted, however, AT&T mysteriously, quote, accidentally corrupted that and only that particular cell phone user's data. Additionally, their mobile device was used hundreds of times before and after January 6, accessing keycard required DOJ, FBI, parking garages, and buildings. I mean, I think it's fucking pretty common knowledge to anyone with more than three brain cells that our government was definitely involved and orchestrated this whole fucking January 6th ridiculous bullshit. So I don't know. I don't know why. Well, I guess I do know why the mainstream media is a bunch of fucking piece of shit garbage. But I just wish it was like a little bit more well known that our governments and the alphabet suit groups were definitely behind January 6th. As far as Tony Sergua, I don't know if this guy's fucking legit. I don't know if he actually has been tracking all this shit. But what I do know is the FBI didn't do shit to try to find this quote unquote pipe bomber from January 6th. You would think that would kind of be like a high priority or something. Hmm. And since we're on the topic of the government infiltrating different groups and acting as agent provocateurs, let me just kind of remind you guys, there was a leaked document that indicated over 300 members of the Oath Keepers could have been current or former DHS employees. And that's a report from Project and Government Oversight. Of course, the DHS never responded to a request for comment from that organization, Project on Government Oversight. The leaked document says some of these members were from the DHS, U.S. Customs and Immigration Services, the Transportation Security Administration, the U.S. Secret Service, and most of the self-described DHS employees asserted that they were retired, but at least one claimed to be an active duty Secret Service agent. Another said they were a supervisor with the Border Patrol. According to Rachel Carol Rivas, who is the Deputy Director of Research Reporting and Analysis at the SPLC Intelligence Project, she said the Oath Keepers succeeded at presenting themselves publicly as a constitutionalist group but that it was always extremist conspiracy-minded, seeking out law enforcement and military recruits for the perceived credibility it would lend to otherwise fringe organization. But it also targeted veterans and police because of their skill set could prove useful in an armed struggle. Carroll stated, quote, that's a real manipulation tactic to target people for a particular skill and then bring them into a violent and ideological movement. So with most other fucking groups like this, it was a fucking fed boy project. And I've always said, just stay away from these fucking groups because they're just going to try to entrap you in some bullshit, get you wrapped up for some bullshit they started and you will be left holding the fucking key. 
or be thrown in solitary confinement for fucking years while you're awaiting trial for (laughs) something ridiculous like January 6th. Get the fuck out of here. All right, you guys, that's about it for this week. Before I get out of here, I have to say what's up to our top three downloading states, which are Washington, California, and Michigan. That's what's up, you guys. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Hit me up at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com if you have a rabbit hole I should dive into. As far as our international downloaders, Hong Kong is still in first place, then Canada, Australia, and the UK. Thank you all for listening. If you have a rabbit hole I should go down, send it on my way. I enjoy the fuck out of that stuff. But until next week, be aware. And don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.